Hello and welcome to Nudge. Today I'm joined again by Ethan Cross. Ethan is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. He's an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and he is director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory at the university. In his latest book, Chatter, Ethan shares the story of an extremely talented up-and-coming baseball player, Rick Ankiel. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. Age just 21, Ankiel was pitching for the Cardinals at the National League playoffs. During his first full season in 2000, he struck out 194 batters, racking up 11 wins to help his team reach the playoffs. He was tipped by many to be one of the best pitchers the game had seen in decades. That was all until October 3rd, 2000, the first round of the national playoffs. Ankil went to take his pitch and threw a dud. The ball bounced off the ground and hit the backstop, letting the batter run to the second base without having to hit the ball. If you watch this clip on YouTube, you'll hear an audible gasp from the crowd. You don't get many dud throws in baseball, especially not from someone tipped to be the best. But hey, it's just one throw and Kill just needed to get back into his game. That, however, is easier said than done. His next throw was even worse. The crowd ooed a bit louder this time, sensing that something was off. Ankel tried to keep his cool, his face looked calm, however he later recalls that inside was nothing but hurt. He felt his mind slipping out of control to what he had come to call the monster, his inner critic. Now this is a player who had barely thrown a wild pitch in his whole career, but now couldn't seem to throw a single ball straight. His inner critic was distracting him, forcing him to overthink and analyse his movements, pulling him out of his flow. He sets up for his fourth throw and it goes wide. His fifth is also wide. And just as you think it can't get any worse, he takes his sixth throw and it's worse than the rest combined. Another awful wild throw. 
Before the Cardinals gave up any more runs, Ankil was pulled out of the game. While most of us can't say we've been through an experience quite like that, I'm sure many can empathise. We've had anxious moments where we just seem off form, struggling to hold our own. This might be on the sports field, but often it's in the office as well. To help understand why this happened, I asked Ethan why Chatter, this monster inside our heads, can turn a superstar sports person into a liability. So chatter can can sink us when it comes to our performance in a variety of ways. Um, when we're thinking specifically about like work, school, or or the ball field, one thing that chatter can do is it can take our our habits and lead them to become unraveled. So if you think about a lot of the things that happen in sports or at work, they are the culmination of years and years of practice. And so take for example. Um, a football player, and I'll use the UK definition of football in, in, in how I, I talk about this. So we call it soccer. And I used to play soccer slash football. I mean, take just, just taking a shot on the goal, right? I mean, we take that for granted often, but in fact, like figuring out how to get the ball into the upper left-hand corner when you have a goal kick, there are lots of things that have to happen. You know, so how many steps away from the ball do you take? What is the angle of your body when you go to strike the ball? Where are you striking the ball with? Is it with your laces or your toe? How do you follow through, right? These are multiple steps that end up getting linked over time through successive practice into one coherent motion. And players, good players, seasoned players, they do this without thinking. I'd argue that the same is true for surgeons who are doing complex operations on people's bodies or presenters when they're going to talk about something, right? We don't think about how our voice is undulating up and down and where are my hands when I'm gesticulating and am I moving back and forth on the, on the, on the stage? We just kind of do it and we do it well because we've practiced, we've gotten feedback, we've internalized it. When something breaks down in those contexts, in those performance contexts, and our chatter starts striking, our, what our chatter does is, it again, it zooms us in on the problem. And if the problem is that, that, that coordinated set of movements or behaviors, taking the goal kick, giving the presentation, what chatter does is it focuses on it so narrowly, it leads, us to, it leads those skills to unravel. So... The, the football player will start thinking, okay, well, how many steps should I take and make sure my body is angled at a 47% pitch before I strike with my bottom third of my laces. Once you start doing that, once you start thinking at that level, at the pieces of the behavior, it totally unravels. We call this paralysis by analysis. And it's one of the reasons why chatter can be so absolutely debilitating under high-performance situations. Ethan cites many studies in his book that highlight paralysis by analysis. Now, this can be in sports, but it's also true of presenting, writing, designing. Essentially, it's any task that requires creativity or fluidity of movement. Often when we struggle with these tasks, the worst thing we can do is overanalyze why things are going wrong. As soon as you start to break down why you're not presenting with as much fluidity as before, you'll start to lose your flow and suffer. 
One of the reasons behind this is our unconscious love for negativity. Newspaper publishers know this all too well. We humans can't help but get attractive to negative stories. That's why newspapers with a negative title sell far better than a positive angle. The same happens in our heads when dealing with difficult moments. We focus on negative aspects and fail to see the bigger picture. Researcher Bernard Rhyme discovered this in his studies, which he conducted back in the 80s. He found that people felt compelled to talk to others about negative experiences. Even when participants were prompted to talk positively, they quickly moved on to negative topics. We, we simply can't help it. But that wasn't all. The more intense the emotion was, the more participants wanted to talk about it. Additionally, participants returned to talking about negative experiences more often, doing so repeatedly over the course of hours, days and weeks and even months to come. Rhyme's findings proved true regardless of people's age, education level, and it was a characteristic of men as well as women, and it even carried across geographies and culture. But there are ways to quell this preference for negativity. Here's Ethan explaining how. You know, are there things you can do once you're in the midst of the performance to break out of that? Yeah, there are some things. For example, uh, if I'm stressed out before I talk, I'll, I'll use distant self-talk. Uh, all right, Ethan, get your act together. You know, like I would give advice to my kids or my my colleagues or students. Um, that can be helpful. I'll also engage in a ritual. A ritual is a, a structured sequence of behaviors that always happen in the same order. So they help us order our mind. You see lots and lots of athletes, interestingly, doing rituals uh, on the ball field, I think, for precisely this reason. Um, but of course, the, the best thing you can do is try to prevent the chatter from occurring in the first place. And so, um, so that's something to keep in mind. Now, there was one study that Ethan ran which attracted a lot of media attention. It combined a lot of the knowledge we've already shared so far about how chatter can harm our performance and why we're attracted towards negativity. But this study went even further. In the study, Ethan attempted to figure out if negative mental experiences could result in physical pain. In other words, could bad mental health have physical side effects? Early on in my career, we were interested in, in trying to explore the, the question of when people experience rejection, they often use a language of physical pain to describe how they feel. My feelings hurt. I'm in pain. And we wanted to know, does... Is pain just a metaphor there? Or when we experience social pain, does it have a physical component, a physical manifestation in our bodies? And so what we did is we we did a brain scanning experiment where we brought people into the lab who had just been uh, essentially dumped in a romantic relationship. And we did something that's going to sound really nasty, but I want to I want to preface this by saying we did do the study to figure out how people, how to help people cope with these negative emotions. And to do that, we had to trigger them. So what did we do? Um, we brought them into the brain scanner, an fMRI machine. And while we were scanning their brains, we, uh, we showed them pictures of their ex. And we had them look at the picture and think about how they felt when they were dumped and, and really try to engage in a elaboration of how they felt when their loved one, told, former loved one told them, I don't like you anymore. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. Uh, and so we did that to get a neural snapshot of, of emotional pain. Um, what we also did in the study is on during another portion of the study, we 
we took a device called a thermode, which is like a little metal plate. We hooked it up to participants' forearms and that thermode heated up to a hot temperature that caused participants physical pain. Now, again, I'm gonna give a, a disclaimer here. We didn't burn anyone. There were no lasting <laughs> lasting blisters. The, the pain we induced was very much akin to holding a hot cup of coffee without one of those protective sleeves. You know, that hurts and you, you put the coffee cup down, but once it goes down, the pain goes away. What we saw that was so interesting in the study was an overlap in terms of the same parts of the brain that are involved in physical sens painful sensation also became activated when people were experiencing social rejection, which, which provided some preliminary evidence suggesting that there is some physical component to experiencing emotional pain. You know, that study was done a long time ago. Um, since then, over 10 years at this point, since then, what we've learned is that chatter can have a host of negative physical health implications. Uh, the pathways are distinct that bring this about, but they are pretty compelling. And so what we know is that the kinds of, uh, so perseverating pers over negative experiences, which is what chatter is all about, that predicts things like, you know, chronic stress reactions that are linked with certain kinds of inflammation, cardiovascular disease, certain forms of cancer. There's even work linking it, showing how perseverating over, over threats in your environment um, can lead to changes in the way our DNA is expressed. I think that work really powerfully shows just how deep these effects of chatter can be. Pain experienced in the brain is akin to physical pain. That might be glaringly obvious for, to anyone who's struggled with their mental health, but it's a useful reminder for all of us about the serious implications our mental state can cause us. So what can we do to beat these painful emotions? Well, one of the most common pieces of advice is to talk to others, to chat with friends, to share things with your spouse or family. We can all picture people who keep things locked up within themselves, only making the problem worse and worse. But is talking with others actually a good idea? I asked Ethan. Yeah, so other people, uh, precisely because another person isn't going through your problem, they've got distance from it. So they're in a prime position to help us work through it. Um, but other people can be either an incredibly powerful aid in allowing us to work through our chatter or vulnerability. Um, and, and, and what's a bit ironic is that the message that is often delivered in popular culture about how other people can help is, is what research suggests is the wrong message. So we often hear when you're experiencing chatter, find someone to talk to, just get it out, vent your emotions. What we know is that venting alone doesn't help people work through their chatter and it can sometimes make it worse. If I find someone, to, let's say I come to you, Phil, to talk about something that's really bothering me, I need help with it. And I just tell you about what happened and what I felt. That makes you and I feel really close and connected and it strengthens our friendship bonds. And that feels good. But if I'm just venting, if you're just egging me on by at really, they said, what? And you, how did you feel? Tell me more. That makes us feel connected, but it doesn't do anything to help me shift my perspective or think differently about the problem. If anything, it just keeps my negative thinking alive, right? Because I leave the conversation, ah, so glad I just spoke to Phil, but God damn it, and all those negative thoughts are active. It's counterintuitive, but it's backed up by some pretty hard science. Often venting your problems with others only makes the situation worse. 
Bernard Rhyme, the researcher I mentioned earlier, found in study after study that talking to others about our negative experiences often doesn't help us recover in any meaningful way. Sure, sharing our emotions with others can make us feel closer to them and, and more supported by the people we open up to, but the ways most of us commonly talk and listen to each other do little to reduce our chatter. Quite frequently, it only exacerbates it. More often than not, the others who we speak to, even with the best intentions in mind, they ask us to retell the problem and get into all the details. If we've been through a breakup, they'll want to know exactly what he or she said. If we're having a tough time at work, they'll ask for examples of, of when your boss has been unfair and rude. Resurfacing and ruminating over negative emotions like this rarely eliminates the problem. Instead, studies show that it actually makes us feel far worse. Here's Ethan talking about a better way to have these conversations. And so what research suggests the best conversations do for managing chatter are actually two things. They do allow us to express our emotions to some degree. Like the other part, it is important to establish a, an empathic connection with another person. And you need to know a little bit about what they felt and what happened to them. But at a certain point during the conversation, the person you're talking to starts nudging you to change your perspective. So, you know, if you came to me with a problem, I'd learn, right, tell me about what happened, Phil. How'd you feel? That sounds awful. That guest really did sound like a, a total pain, a real pill. But, you know, you've, you've had other guests that were, that were curmudgeon before, right? You got over it. How'd you deal with those? Or, you know what? I dealt with something like that similar in my lab a couple of weeks ago. Here's what I did. So what I'm doing there is I'm in no way um, trivializing your experience. I'm learning about it. I'm giving you an opportunity to share your emotions. I'm showing you I care, but I'm not just egging you on, getting you to get stuck in it. I'm trying to then shift to a solution-oriented problem-focused mode. And the best kinds of conversation for managing chatter do both of those things. So they establish a connection between two people, an emotional connection, but then, but then they start talking about solutions. And so I think it's important to keep both of those features of productive conversations in mind, both when you're seeking chatter support and when you're providing it. There are many, many, many um, very reputable public health organizations right now that for COVID advocate finding someone to vent your emotions and just express it. And it, it, it's somewhat shocking given the data that does not support that idea. So, so I do think there's real value in disseminating this information. So next time someone comes to you with a problem, don't ask them for all the nitty gritty details. Try to zoom out. Try to help them think of times when they've gone through similar problems and made it through to the other side. Give examples of others you know who have dealt with something similar. Help them see the bigger picture in an empathetic way. It's an important skill for all of us to learn because not having people to talk to at all can be far worse. As Ethan shares in his book, not having a strong support network is an equivalent risk factor for death as smoking more than 15 cigarettes a day. In fact, it's an even greater risk factor than consuming excessive amounts of alcohol, not exercising, being obese or living in a highly polluted city. So make sure that you can talk with others, but try to have those conversations in a productive way. Towards the end of my conversation with Ethan, I asked if he stumbled upon other counterintuitive findings like this during his career. Another, another just non-obvious tool is experiencing the emotion of awe. 
So awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble understanding. So I experienced it last week when I watched the Mars rover land on Mars. I have trouble understanding how we figured out how to blast SUVs into outer space and then safely land them on another planet. I just can't wrap my head around how that all works. And what we now know is that when people experience awe, that leads to something called a shrinking of the self. We and our problems feel much smaller when we're contemplating something vast and indescribable like interplanetary travel. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be that grand. It can be just a great piece of art that gives you a sense of awe or watching your kid take their first steps. And so that's another tool that exists for managing chatter, right? Experiencing that emotional state. I don't think that was on everyone's radar. When listening to Ethan talk about experiencing a sense of awe, I started to think of moments in my life when I've experienced something similar. More often than not, they've been inspired by a unique place that I've been to. Now, this is no surprise. Ethan cites many studies in his book that show how the location you're in dramatically influences your mental state. In one particularly compelling study, the environmental psychologist Roger Aldrich found that patients recovering from gallbladder surgery who were assigned to a room that faced onto a small cluster of trees in hospital recovered far faster from their operations, took fewer painkillers, and were judged as more emotionally resilient by the nurses caring for them than similar patients who were recovering in rooms with windows that looked onto a brick wall. It clearly suggests that some connection with nature can dramatically influence both our physical and mental health. Another study using data from more than 10,000 individuals in England collected over 18 years found that people reported experiencing lower levels of stress and higher levels of well-being when living in an urban area with more green space. Similarly, a 2015 high-resolution satellite imagery study of the Canadian city of Toronto found that having just 10 more trees in a city block was associated with improvements in people's health comparable to an increase in their annual income of $10,000 a year, or even being seven years younger. Quite a lot for just a few trees in a city block. And one final satellite imagery study conducted by a different team with more than 900,000 participants found that children who grew up with less exposure to green spaces had between 15 to 55% higher risk of developing psychological disorders such as depression and anxiety. Now, it's not just important to have greenery where you live or, or where you grew up. Just brief exposure to nature can really help. In one thought-provoking experiment, researchers found that participants' performance on an attention test improved considerably right after a nature walk, but not after an urban walk. Their ability to invert strings of numbers and repeat them back to the experimenter was much sharper Moreover, the results didn't depend on whether the participants took their walks during idyllic summer or gloomy winter. No matter what time of year, the nature stroll helped their attention more than the urban one did. Nature walks are just one of those tools that we can all use to help our mental health. Now, before Ethan left our discussion, I asked if there was a single tool that he would encourage all of us to use. Here's what he said. No but I'll elaborate on that answer. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked about the specific tools because I, I believe in something called a toolbox approach to coping and to thinking about how these tools can be used profitably in our lives. 
I don't think there are any single magic bullets. And what I mean by that is um, different tools work for different people in different situations and different combinations of tools. So uh, when I'm, when I'm experiencing chatter over COVID, I do several things. I do distance self-talk. I do temporal distancing. I, I, I interact with nature and I call up a few buddies. So there's five things right there. They're all pretty easy. They don't happen in a, in a same sequence every time. Sometimes I do a little bit of one and then two of others, but I've found a way of, I found the chatter cocktail that really works for me. I think that's probably true for most people that there are different combinations of tools that work for them in different situations. And those combinations may be slightly different for you as compared to me. So my advice for people who are interested in using these tools is to, to read through them. I've summarized them at the end of the book and iterate, you know, try one out, then try another, try two in combination, use the ones that work for you. Don't use the ones that don't and find the unique uh, cocktail that works for you. That, unfortunately, is all we have time for today. We've covered a lot and learned a number of counterintuitive things. For example, analysing our performance is often one of the worst things we can do when going through a bad spell of form. We've also heard that talking to others is often the wrong thing to do when we're struggling, especially if all we're doing is venting. And we've heard that our environment can dramatically impact our mood, improve our attention and help us recover faster from illness. If you've enjoyed the show, you will undoubtedly love Ethan's book, Chatter. I've left a link to the book in the show notes so you can pick up a copy there. And I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Nudge. Um, In that episode, we'll be back to focusing on more marketing tactics to improve your work. If you want to make sure you don't miss that episode, then hit subscribe on your podcast player and sign up to my email list, the link to which is in the show notes. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Nudge podcast all one word and on there we'll we'll send out a tweet every single time a new episode goes live okay that's all thank you again for listening to this episode of nudge